morning. Well, we're continuing on our, th- our theme that Sarah kicked us off with last week, uh, A Year to Love. I can remember way sometime, I can't remember, it was, it was quite a little while ago, but I remember on one occasion seeing this mother kneeling down, not crouching down, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, yelling at the top of her head at her, this little girl on the roadside. And she was really bawling at her. And you and I know that that's not a great way to parent. It's not great for the kid at all, and it's certainly not good for the parent. She was going to burst a blood vessel or something. And looking from the outside, you might think, oh, what a terrible parent. But when you realize what happened, because I saw what happened, um, this little girl was excited, and I think she saw a friend or something on the other side of the road, and she darted out on the other side of the road and nearly got run over. And the parent yanked her back, and because of the sheer terror of thinking that her little girl was going to get run over, her instinctive reaction was just to bawl at her, don't you ever dare do that again. And what was motivating this inappropriate reaction, I agree, was love. And uh, it's easy sometimes, isn't it, to judge people whether we don't love them or whether they're not loving by external circumstances when we're not up personal and don't know all the facts. I mean, I'm sure there's many occasions in my parenting and Sarah's parenting when people from the outside might have thought, well, that is really not very loving or very kind. I remember when... uh, I had to go and speak to the head teacher that we weren't going to allow Rachel to watch Jurassic Park in the school class. Now, she was in the first year of reception. And for some bizarre reason, they, they were, the, the teacher thought, because they were studying dinosaurs, thought it would be good, as a part of the lesson, for them to put Jurassic Park on. And she was about like five or six or something. So I went to the teacher, and you know, I was speaking to the head teacher, and she just would not see that this potential, this thing could potentially cause children of five or six trauma as they see these monsters eating their parents. (laughs) But we've never allowed our children to actually. They can watch them now. (laughs) But we've never allowed our children to watch uh, TV, uh, films, movies that are beyond their age rating. And from the outside, I can understand how another parent or a child might find that, well, that's a bit over the top and unkind when I hear all my best friends having a party and as part of the party we're going to watch such and such a film and it's a 15 and they're 10 years old or a 12 and they're 10 years old. And we say, well, if that's happened, you can't go to the party. And the parents are upset for the kids who's the party that is putting it on and the kids and the friends are upset and our children are upset. But we don't let them go. Or sometimes there was an inset day and this happened quite a bit, didn't it, Matthew? Uh, where there was an inset day, and they said, oh, it's an inset day, it's coming up to Christmas, you know, when you get to bring your toys in, or something like that. And they said, oh, uh, one of the kids are bringing in a DVD, and we're all going to watch XYZ, and it's above their age rating. 
So they'd have to sit out the classroom. And from the outside, you might think, well, actually, that's not very loving. That seems a bit cruel. That seems a bit unkind. But here's the thing. Um, There's a reason why the psychologists and the sociologists and the child development experts who sit on the board of ratings come up with these age restrictions that are appropriate or not appropriate for certain ages. There's a reason. And it's the same reason, looking at Dr. Sam here, the same reason uh, why doctors and people who study medicine and uh, the development and the physiological development of human beings will say, this particular medicine, even if it's an over-the-counter medicine like paracetamol, is not appropriate for you know, somebody under the age of 12, for example. And why is that? Because their body is not developed enough to cope with the toxicity of that particular medicine. And the reason why we wouldn't allow um, our kids to watch ratings that were above their age is because their emotional and mental and psychological and personal development was at a stage that it wasn't able to cope with the toxicity of trauma and threat and violence and sexual exposure and horror and of a particular film. That's why. And on the outside, unless you understand that restriction, that boundary, you might think, cool, well, that's not very good. That's not a very kind parent. Look, they can't go to the party. But every one of our children, as an adult, in their own words, in one, in one way or another, have come up to Sarah and myself and said this, thank you. And I remember Rachel, who's uh, sitting in the... Which her turn to do it was... Uh, I was driving to, to the station uh, off to, to work, back to London. She said, I just want to say something, Dad. Thank you for loving us enough not to allow us to get away with stuff. Because I've seen my friends who have been able to get away with stuff and they're miserable. <laughs> but thank you for loving, enough, loving us enough. And they've all said that to us in their own time. Because when you are up close and personal and see the whys and the motive, things that on the outside can seem a little bit harsh actually turn out to be tender and loving. And as we look at this year of love. I would like to take a moment, 25 minutes, to to actually look at some of the things that when we look at the ways of God or experiences and some passages of the Bible and God's works and God's acts and God's words and we might think, that doesn't seem very loving. Sarah talked last week about God loving us but There's things that, in the back of my mind, that sort of doubts that lurk and hamstring my ability to receive the love of God because I'm not sure that all his ways are loving when I look at it from the outside. And I think if we're really going to grow in love, uh, and that's the ability to to receive love, the love of God, and give love back to him, because we cannot love him unless we are loved by him. 
We love God because he first loved us. Unless we know we are loved by him, we cannot love him. And the ability to receive the love of God and love God then goes on to the second commandment. It it actually connects with our ability to receive the love of others and give love to others. And when we receive God's love and give give love to God and receive love from others and give love to others, that's when we become whole. That's when we become complete. That's when we become joyful in life, despite all of the challenges. That's when we become healed, because we're made for it. But unless we're honest and we deal with some of the lurking doubts, we're not in a place where we can fully receive it. And I really want us this year to journey so that at the end of the year, we really know we are loved. And we really know how to love. Sarah last week, she quoted this verse, and I've clung on to this verse so many times. I'm sure you have too. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Isn't that a wonderful verse? But look, look at the book it's written in. Lamentations. It seems like contradictory that he's celebrating the love of God and yet he's writing a book called Lamentations. Lamentations, it's a book of regret, it's a book of sorrow, it's a book of grief, it's a book of pain, it's a a book of expressing the, the tragedy of the human soul and the human spirit and the deep regret. It's a book of pain. And yet he's writing this in the context of pain. And of course, let's look at the context. The context is Jeremiah the prophet was sent to announce judgment to Israel. And if they didn't turn from their sins, it would be the most horrific experience. And so the verses just before he says this in Lamentations, let me read them out to you. I don't know if we got them. Have we got them? Oh, yeah. This is, this is the verses before we get to the good stuff. The thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. Can you see how kind of those things don't kind of fit? And when we look at the Old Testament and some of the things in the Old Testament, we can, it's understandable sometimes for us to think that God is being harsh on the outside. Like maybe some parents and teachers might thought, me and mum, me and Sarah are being harsh with our kids, spoiling their fun. But look at the experience of those who encountered God in the Old Testament. Look at the things they said. So here's, here's the writings and the responses to the people actually in the Old Testament. Not us looking from the outside in, but what their responses were. Here's just one. Look at it. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all creation. 
Do you see the contradiction here? How we look in 4,000 years, 3,000 years later on the outside and go, oh, this seems a bit harsh. Not real fun like that. But those who are in the moment, their experience of God in the moment is totally different to our conclusion from the outside. It's a thought, isn't it? And which is more trustworthy? The response of those who are experiencing God in the moment or those who are judging God from the outside? Which is a more valid conclusion? So if we want to receive the love of God and grow in this, in this year, uh, let's address some of the doubts that lurk regarding him and his love. And let's be honest enough to address it, the hindrances in the back of our mind. And like any relationship, when there's a question mark, it's over trust. It's difficult to love, isn't it? Hmm? So sometimes we read things that cause us to question. All right. Let's have a look at some of the things in the Bible. Just, I haven't got time to unpack all this. This isn't like a theological seminar or anything like that. I mean, this is, this is a half an hour talk. But I, I, I just want to put some seeds in there that, just, that can germinate to build your confidence. Is that okay? Great. Okay, let's, go, let's look at Jeremiah. Some difficult passages. What about when we hear about God sending judgments on the nations, rising up an army to invade, or a famine is coming? Context helps. That's understanding the times that these things were said. Okay, times when is in the Old Testament with Israel and other nations, often those nations became tyrannical and evil. You would often find as Israel turned away from the Lord, they would engage in the most horrific, abusive, foul, I mean, terrible practices. So relig- both politically and religiously. Religiously, they were going to idolatry and it often used huge amounts of witchcraft and child sacrifice. I mean, they would, they would take their children and they would sacrifice them to their gods. And this was prevalent. And, the, and the, the judicial system was corrupted. Time and time again, the prophets talked about there's being injustice in the courts where the innocent and the poor and the powerless were taken advantage of. And anything they had was seized, and if they protested, they were murdered and killed. And the kings and the rulers and the, govern, and, and the governors exploited The poor and the broken and innocent. Workers were exploited. People were killed and robbed. and That's why it talks about orphans and widows so much in the Old Testament. And and, and God's looking down and this is the deal. What would happen if such abusive, systematic, corrupt, evil, murderous practices happened in a nation in our day, what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. The United Nations would have a conference and they would 
they would deliberate, and if the foundings were found to be true, and I'm not talking about an individual nation here, which might just decide to go to war or something, and the motives and the findings are substantive. I'm talking about the collective body of united nations across the world that deliberate over weeks over these things. And if there is found to be corruption and genocide and murder and something that is wrong and violating human rights, if they find that, and it is at such a scale that something must be done about this, They'll do, first of all, there's a certain process that will take place. The first thing they will do is that they will send a political message to that nation and to the rulers and say, stop. Stop it. It's wrong. They'll send a political message. Now, back in the day of Israel and the Old Testament, there was no United Nations. So there was no delegated authority to execute justice and compassion and protection out of compassion for victims in a nation on earth. There was no such mechanism. But God was on the throne. So he took it upon himself. So what would he do? He would send a political message. They're called prophets. He would raise up a prophet to speak to power. And to call for change in power. He would speak to the, I mean, the religious powers. Remember, the, relig- the priesthood had a strong influence in the nation. And he would speak to the kings, the governmental power. And he said, change. Just like the United, United Nations, they would say change. So, let me put the verse up, please. Thank you very much. This is what the Lord says. Stand in front of the temple of the Lord and make an announcement to the people. Perhaps they will listen and turn from the evil ways. Then I will change my mind about the disaster I'm ready to pour out upon them because of their sins. It's not a vengeful God. This is, this is like God saying, if you don't change, I'm going, to put some, I'm going to put some pressure upon you. If you don't do it willingly, I'm going to have to exert some pressure. Say to them, This is what the Lord says, if you don't listen to me and obey my words I've given you, and if you do not listen to my servants, the prophets, which I send to them again and again. And this is very what happens in the political process. There's a a great reluctance to actually exert a pressure upon another nation. But that pressure does come because of compassion and a defense of the innocent and human rights. Although it's done reluctantly. But it's not just, okay, I'm going to give you one warning. They again and again and again. And these negotiations and these messages go on a long time. And he says, I've sent my servant to you again and again. But you would not listen. So then I will destroy this temple as I destroyed Shiloh, the place where my tabernacle was located. And I will make Jerusalem an object of cursing in every nation. So basically there's a warning. It says, if change freely, and if you don't, I'll have to do something. And that's the second section when we look at United Nations and the way the world governing process comes to protect and to preserve. 
It says, okay, if you don't listen, what I'm going to do, we're going to bring some pressure. The first pressure is what they do. It's called sanctions or an embargo. It might like, we're not going to trade. You're going to find that there's a lack of stuff coming to you, a lack of food or resources. There's a restriction upon you. And that, that limitation, that restriction is like a, a warning to say, come on, we can listen. It doesn't have to be like this, but it's a discipline. And so what does the Lord do? First he sends prophets and then he'll send, well, in the case of Joel, the ambassador of the citizen of heaven, uh, Joel says, if you don't change, because Israel comes so corrupt, I'm going to send a, a plague of locusts and they're going to eat everything. There will be no corn in the barns and, so, and wine in the vats. And you're going to find yourself in a restricted place. And so he sends a prophet and he says, if you don't, this, I'm warning you, this is what will happen. Not straight away, it's time to think about it, time to change, time to make the adjustment. But if you don't, I'm warning you, it's coming, we're going to do something. Heaven is going to do something. The United Nations say, if it's coming, we're going to do something. So look at what it says. The Lord says, turn to me now. Whilst there's still time, give me your heart. Come with fasting, weeping, mourning. Don't tear your clothes in grief, but but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord, for he is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger. Oh, same words as Jeremiah. And filled with unfading love. He is eager to relent and not punish. He doesn't want to do this. But I'm going to protect the innocent. I'm going to stop the murder, the child sacrifice. I'm going to stop the injustice in the courts. I'm going to stop it because of compassion. And if you don't do it just because I'm asking you, I'm going to put some pressure on you that you will. But I don't want to put that pressure. If you change, I'll relent. So that's the second thing. Now what's the third thing that happens in our modern day world? If there's no response to the messaging, there's no response to the embargoes and the sanctions and the trade restrictions, what's the second thing? Military force. The United Nations, they actually go to war. Why do they go to war? For system regime change. Because if, if, the, if the rulers are going to be terrific and they're going to come in... And we're going to change the rulership and put a just one in place. Now, in an imperfect world, it always works, it works imperfectly. But that's the motive. That's the end game. To bring liberty to the victims of that nation and the tyrants go and a just government come in place. And so, I send a prophet and uh, they say... I'm going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon is going to come against you. He's going to seize you, come into Jerusalem. And your rulers and your priests, they're all going to be carried off into exile. And the poor and the broken and those who have been suffering get to stay. And they, and they get to grow their crops again. And the tyrannical rulers are carried off into Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar puts his own... Governors in charge. 
And and unbelievably, the condition of those in Israel are better in terms of their welfare under a foreign rulership than they were under their own rulership that had become corrupt and were just abusing them. And then in due course, in exile, they see the errors of their ways, they repent and God can bring them back. But that's the motive. So when you read through the pages of the new scriptures of the Old Testament, you just read through, wow, this is a heavy book (laughs) of judgment and despair. And then you actually see what's happening. You think, oh, God seems very harsh. But when you're up close and personal... And you see the motives and the reasons and what's going on. It's no different to what happens now. Regrettable. Done very reluctantly. Lots of warnings. Loads of opportunity to repent so that God may relent and it may not happen. But at the end of the day, because of love and compassion, he does it. And this is exactly what happened to Jeremiah. And that's why Jeremiah, after... All of this has happened, and the nation is devastated. He says, what's happened is absolutely dreadful. Dreadful. But I remember this one thing. God is loving and compassionate and his mercy is there because he knows the motive and the reason and the outcome is for the well-being of his people. So he can say in his experience, what's happened is terrible, but actually my experience of God is he loves us enough not to get away with stuff. So that's some of the difficult passages in the Old Testament. What about, in the next 10 minutes, what about... When we look around the world and we say, well, if God is God and he's so powerful and mighty and in charge and sovereign, why doesn't he stop all the wrong if he's loving? Why is all the, why is all the bad stuff still happening? It's because he's loving, he doesn't. You see... If God would have to stop all the bad stuff, for example, that people do in the world, he'd have to stop everyone from exercising free will. The choose, the choice to choose right and wrong. And if he forces you and takes away the choice of human will, you are being dehumanized. Because one of the foundational things about human beings is that they have free will. And the other foundational thing about being a human being is that you have a sense of moral choice because we are moral beings we are moral we know right and wrong and so if God were to say in order to stop all the bad stuff and the evil things happening in the world 
I have to forbid you. I have to stop you. I have to put a chain around you, a handcuff around your free will and make you a slave to only do the right thing. Not out of choice, but because I'm forcing you to. You become less human. You're not allowed to exercise your humanity. And, you be, and it damages you. And when God made Adam and Eve, interesting enough, as moral beings made in his image because he is moral, and he put this tree in the garden. Why did he put the tree in the garden? He says, you can eat everything. Eat it all. It's all there for you. Except don't eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had the ability to, but he says, don't do it. And they had to choose not to do it. But why did he put it there in the, in the garden? Because if there was no tree in the garden, there was no opportunity to exercise choice. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't have to choose. All the temp- it's all- I don't have to choose at all. I don't have to exercise choice. But the very fact the tree was there means that you can exercise choice and you can exercise your humanity with free will, just like God exercises choice. Just like Jesus chose not to sin. He chose to as a human being made in the image of God. So the reason why God doesn't take away your free will and gives you the freedom to choose right and wrong, good and bad, is because he loves you as a human being. And he's not going to make you a slave, even to his will. You see, do you know the thing about God? He's sovereign, he's powerful. He can do anything. Well, in theory, he can't make a square circle. But just because he is all-powerful doesn't mean that he always gets what he wants. And there's stuff that happens in the world that he doesn't want. But because he loves you, <laughs> he lets it happen. He's not willing for any to perish. But he gives everybody the choice to become followers of Christ. doesn't make you a slave. Because he makes you a slave, he dehumanizes you. Am I communicating? Secondly, the other reason why God doesn't come and stop it all is because if he stopped it all, he would have to bring a judgment to all the wrong. Because you have to stop or stop it, then you're going to have to assess it and judge it. And that's not just all the evil, like uh, the terrible things that we hear about on the news and paper and the radio and around the world. Not just all the terrible things. You think, oh, this is, this is beyond my human imagination to hear. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed it unless I was told it. But my wrong too, my selfishness. Not just the big stuff, but my sin... My sin when I've wounded and hurt and been selfish and reckless and my words, my thoughts, my selfishness. I'd have to come into judgment too if he was going to stop it all. And so that means that he would bring a judgment. Now, the thing about judgment, he would bring good justice. Now, justice, that's another thing. Oh, I don't like the sound of judgment. No, let me just stop. Justice is good. If you want 
to have a fair and just and loving society, you have to have justice. You know what it's like. You sometimes hear of somebody who goes to court, they've done terrible things, and because of a clever lawyer or a weak judge, they get off scot-free. You know, three months community service for devastating people's lives. Devastating. And there's something in you and me that when we read God, that is not right. That is not loving. That's not good. Right? So we know, we don't, and one part of we don't like the thought of justice, because who likes that thought? But in our heart of hearts, we know it's good and right, and we need it. Because God is good, he is just. So if he stopped everything, not only would he have to take away your free will, that's not loving, he would have to be unjust and let stuff go unaccounted for. And that's not good. It's not righteous. It's not loving. And even children, when they're in, in home, you know, everyone's got, got, I've had little kids knows this. What an incredible sense of justice and fairness children have. You don't have to teach them it. They don't have to go to law school to learn about justice. Because it, we know intuitively it's right. That's not her, mummy. <laughs> So here's the thing, God doesn't stop it, because if he did, he'd have to judge all our wrongdoing now. Now there is a time when Jesus will return, and everything will be judged, and everything will be accounted for, but he's holding back that judgment so that as many as possible can turn and be forgiven so that we don't have to receive the judgment for our sins ourselves because Christ was judged for us. It's always a judgment. Jesus took our punishment for our sins. And when we turn, we receive forgiveness. And he's, he's protracting and putting off the day of his return so that as many people like me, <laughs> me, oh, I was a right sinner, me, I turned to Christ and was forgiven. Forgiven. And you, Sam, you turned to Christ and you were forgiven. So people like you and me, in the course of time, can find mercy because of Christ took our judgment. But if he returns now, there's less opportunity for people like you and me to turn and be forgiven And then we'd have to face good justice. But who wants to face good justice? What criminal wants to face good justice? But it's good. Christ faced our good justice in our place. So, you know, last Monday, Sarah and I saw a day off on Monday, so we were having a meal, lunchtime, got chatting with a couple, as often happens. They asked what we did, as often happens. Started talking about spiritual things. Uh, the wife went off to the loo. Sarah went off, I think she went to the, somewhere else to see somebody or you know, do something. And in the moment of just him and me on our own, 
he turns around to me and goes, I believe there's a God. And that one day, we all have to give an account to somebody for what we've done. Not a Christian, but he believes it. He knows it. So, justice is good. Judgment is an act of love. But mercy is greater. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he lets us carry on with the choice to do wrong so that we may change our minds out of his love and mercy and not come into judgment. And in the meantime, out of love, he's being patient with us. We're having a number of weddings this year. I got that love and feeling. <laughs> number of weddings. I wonder how many of them will read these words. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no score of wrongs. He's holding it off. He's not scoring against us. There is a day. But we can turn and know mercy. And the Bible says mercy triumphs over judgment. And why all these things? It's out of love. Out of compassion. Out of goodness. And so as we enter into a year of a year of love, let's know that, as the Bible says, all the ways of the Lord are loving. Let's be honest and say there are sometimes things that I don't understand because I'm looking in from the outside. But let us be humble and trusting that why we don't understand all things, it doesn't mean that God is not loving in all things. And let us trust that with the passing of time, we shall see, understand, and grow in the love of God for us and the love of God for others. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will help us to unlearn some things today and to learn some things today afresh. When you said, Lord, come to me, because I am humble and my yoke is light and that you are tender in heart and you said come to me and learn from me I pray that we will come to you and learn from you again and that all of our misgivings and unhelpful conclusions because we read and see and observed and put two and two together and get five I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll just begin to recalibrate our understanding that we, like the people of the Old Testament, as well as people who know you closely in today's world, will be able to say, despite all the challenges and the difficulties and sometimes hard things, we may be able to say, my experience of God is that he is loving, compassionate, merciful, kind, tender, and good. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.